My guest is Marina Hyde. Marina Hyde is a columnist at The Guardian and has just published a new collection of her most recent columns in The Guardian called What Just Happened? Dispatches from Turbulent Times. Welcome to the podcast, Marina. Thank you very much for having me, Paul. <laughs> right. Well, I know from your colleague uh, at The Guardian, Raphael Baer, that this is not your maybe your favourite activity, uh, <laughs> talking on podcasts, so I'm particularly grateful that you've taken the time. Thank oh, you so no. Much. I mean, I don't mind it so much. I, I'm just not, I'm one of these very unfashionable people who never really does any form of broadcast because I feel like I'm just a writer and that's that. So, um, I, and I, you know, I also think I'm terribly bad at it. So I'm apologising in advance to your listeners. Right. Okay. Well, what's it like to be known as the funniest writer in Britain, as Kathleen Moran says <laughs> in the back of your book? Unconvincing. Kind of- unconvincing, Paul. I, I, it, very nice, but unconvincing. But it's, you know, I mean... It's funny in a way. Um, it's funny that since the sort of Brexit vote, I would say, is when my columns particularly, or the politics column rather, particularly took off. And I wonder in a weird way whether, um, you know, humour was in some ways the most rational response to it. I mean, humour is a very good defensive response in ordinary life, I find anyway, and perhaps um, to, perhaps to the political situation. <laughs> It just seemed, I suppose it's funny because it seemed, it has in millions of ways been deadly serious, but in, in many ways it's been very suited to trying to write jokes about it in some ways. And I think people have needed jokes about it, or, you know, honestly, I know I have. I mean, I've read many other people's fantastic things about it, but it, it you do sort of, you need that pressure valve to the release in a way. We're going to test this this wittiness thing in a second, but before we do that, you've been writing for The Guardian incredibly since the year 2000. Did you, you believe it? Did you set out to be a journalist when you left school or university? That no, I didn't really. I, I mean, I really became a journalist in a way by accident because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I worked for a long time for a temping agency, which sent me all over the place to answer the phone um, and mostly in sort of places in the city and things like that. And then I actually got... One day they offered me either three months at this awful place in the city I worked at before or three days answering the phone on the son's showbiz desk. And, you know, I know if you've ever tempt, you have to take the three month job because you just, you know, it's the security. But something made me think, I just I just don't know if I can go back that I'll take this job. And it was such complete fun. I mean, I was working, you know, I was answering the phone on the showbiz desk. It was the height of all the sort of, you know, it was like Spice Girls, All Saints, Robbie Williams, that particular era. And it was sort of hilarious. And I ended up staying longer than three days because they needed secretary for longer. Um, And then I stayed, you know, and I, so I started as a secretary um, and then I ended up doing the picture research and things like that. And that's really how I got into journalism, which is not a particularly conventional route. Well, and it's extraordinary also, you, uh, until quite recently, were also a, a sports columnist. And just to make you blush even more, you're the only woman in 45 years to receive the Sports Right of the Year Award for the Sports Journalists Association. That's pretty <laughs> incredible as well. Well, I mean, yes, it was quite a surprise. Um, yes, um, yes, which I love doing. I mean, I used to go and cover all tournaments and Olympics and everything, as well as writing the regular sports content, which I completely loved. But now I've got my children, I feel like leaving them for sort of such long periods you know if you go for a world cup it ends up being about five five weeks at least and I just I tend not to leave them for such a long time I'm sure they're getting to the age where they'd actually quite like me to now but (laughs) (laughs) right okay well sort of fast forward a bit to the the start of this collection is it a coincidence that you chose around the time of the referendum to as a starting point for this latest collection of your columns well 
I do think, first of all, I thought it was fun. I mean, I often used to write, try and write much more serious things about politics, really. But it's very odd that in the in that the wake in that the referendum vote, the referendum campaign and that vote um, and the sort of chaotic wake of it. I really feel that having found my voice on the sports column and a showbiz column I did for a long time as well, much more easily before, I finally found the way I wanted to write about politics at that, and it all sort of clicked at that time. But also I do feel that that was the point where British politics sort of left the tracks. And I don't, um, and you know, people on both sides would agree that we have lived in a sort of, a, a, a kind of, escalating series of various different types of crises interlocking crises the perma crisis we call it now right. um and so in a way i had to stick a pin in it somewhere and i thought that that moment and i did i did a column i think the first column is on the eve of the referendum almost the eve of the referendum vote, but it's actually written the day after that joe cox was murdered right. um and i guess i suppose i wanted to start the collection in a way with something that, although even that column contains sort of humour, but it is also a very serious column by the time it gets to the end. Um, because I've, you know, the stakes are always massively high. It's a, in politics, it's a game played with people's lives. Um, but there are times when it just seems incredibly clear. And I thought that starting it to remind, with a reminder of how terrible and awful and whatever things can get in extremists um, was the right moment. So that's why I decided to do it then. And it is for you, maybe. Um, you can talk about Trump and the many other things in the world which are a bit wacky, but Brexit is the gift that keeps on giving for you. But if you look at the 440-odd pages of this collection, a big chunk of those 44 pages are devoted to Brexit. And maybe I know it's still not done that. properly either, is it? Um, yes, I mean, it was very good for business. I mean, not actual business, obviously, but for my business, it was... <laughs> I mean, you know, you forget how bad some of the years are. I was, you know, when I was going through and I was speaking kind of columns for the selection, you sort of think, oh, you know, 2017, and then Theresa May has her kind of Darwin Award winning election where she loses a majority and therefore can't do anything, having already set herself all sorts of red lines. And then you think, oh, my God, 2018, 2018 is so bad. <laughs> it's just a, a sort of year of not being able to do anything and nobody ever being able to agree. And then it just gets even worse. And you know, then it gets. Then we have 2019. <laughs> to be say nothing of 2020 <laughs> pandemic. So, so then that. But do you find yourself having to occasionally to kind of uh, censor yourself and say, "I mustn't bang on about Brexit again." I personally love your Brexit column, but maybe you think maybe I shouldn't uh, focus too much on one topic. Well, I mean, I didn't at the time because it was the only story in town. I mean, it was apart from being any government sort of flagship policy, it was the only policy. The amount of things that were kind of left to slide, as we can see when you look at the kind of state of the public realm and institutions in all sorts of ways, it was really the only thing, you know, and, and nothing, enough, and it couldn't get done. Um, and there was, it was just this sort of endless, you know, we and, and people became absolutely obsessed and glued to it. I find it, in the introduction of the book, I talk about when I went to see, a friend of mine was doing a comedy tour and one of his early dates were in Worcester. And I went, I said, I'll come and see you in Worcester. And I arrived in the afternoon on a Tuesday and I put my bag down in my hotel and I went down to the bottom of the hotel, which is also a sort of pub. And it was full of people, tables of ones and twos, sitting absolutely glued to the Sky News coverage of the pro the lawfulness or otherwise of the prorogation of parliament and i remember thinking it's yeah. very weird it was three o'clock on a tuesday afternoon 
I thought something very weird has happened to the UK. You know, I mean, I feel very sad that my children were able to do John Burko impressions because every <laughs> night I had to watch this, these wretched votes. You remember all these? I mean, I'm, in the book, I was going back over them thinking, what were meaningful votes? What were indicative votes? I mean, this is, you know, I've sort of buried lots of this in a kind of memory hole for my own sanity. But you were watching these things every night. And, I, you know, I, I yes, as I say, my children could do a John Burko impression. And that's, you know, that's wrong. And something very precious was taken from them in that moment. Well, I can suppose in one way that your your column has been quite therapeutic for the poor Ramonas out there who felt that they that the world was coming to an end. At least they through your through your columns they could find some some pleasure and some enjoyment. Well, I have to say that after a while, I used to start getting a lot of things from people who backed Brexit just because we were living in such you know po- positive things because it, it was a period of such complete chaos. Um, and I don't, by the way, think we're out of it now um, on Brexit or any other front. But and and and. You know, you in a way you sort of had to laugh, and there is a sort of therapy in that to some extent. I mean, I feel I it's actually quite cathartic to end up writing about these things in a way. Therapists tell you to write everything down, you know, and my job was actually sort of writing my way through it. And there's something quite therapeutic about having to try and think of a joke about something to get to the heart of it, or whatever it is that actually is a way of working through what as far as I could see was widespread rage on both sides yeah. <laughs> widespread you know like why can't they just get this thing done or what you know why are we doing this thing whatever it was um it, it I suppose it sort of spoke to a kind of howl of frustration in many people to be fair you you talk about write about many other topics apart from Brexit and you skewer all sorts of uh, personalities across, along the way normally public figures obviously politicians do you have any uh, any experiences of the reactions some of these people might have had uh, to you have they have they ever told you directly and directly what they feel about being skewered by Marina in her column no Paul I have no con- I have no correspondence with politicians <laughs> at all actually I did used to, I did used to see Boris Johnson at, the, at a distance and he would go I'm doing a bad impression now he would always and I always used to think why do you, you just act like you've never read it I mean you know you're the <laughs> prime minister just pretend you've never read it you know be cool but he was not cool right well going back to, to, to humor then do you do you see yourself as a, as a witty funny person are you funny at home with your children you're at home with and your husband I mean are you, oh god you, Paul, I mean I try to be I try to be miserable I, or whatever because you're saving your wit for your professional life no I suppose I mean I try to be I suppose in a way you know, it's that it, it, it's my voice. It's how I see things, and that, and I suppose in a way that when you actually find, you know, when I say you know, you find your voice. In a way, you find a way of making your your voice that exists in daily life actually come through in the writing. And I think that in some ways, it took longer for me to do that in my politics columns than it did in my other columns, my sport and my celebrity columns I used to write. But yeah, I think it. I mean, it is me. You can't because I write them so quickly. You can't. You can't really be anybody else. I don't have time to be somebody else because I write them very fast. Well, I was going to ask you. This sounds a bit kind of over and analytical, but your process or your process. I mean, how do you go about writing columns? Do you sit at a, a blank screen and think, "My God, I'm going to write," or you? Yes, I do. I do. What I do? Show? I open a Word document and I have no idea what I'm going to write till that morning. And I end up writing things down in the Word document, but I never start at the beginning. I never start at the beginning of the column. And then I just sort of move things around and gradually and write some more things. And then one thing will remind me of another. And then gradually out of this primordial soup, something staggers, potentially a terrible column, but potentially an okay column. Um, And I mean, the whole process takes about two or three hours. 
and then that's it it's gone you know but of course it's not now because it's in a book <laughs> I rather think newspaper columns should evaporate within 24 hours, you as know, they used to in the old days. You know, you're really infuriating all your colleagues out there who listen to this and say, my gosh, not only is she bloody top of her game, but she's also running this off in about three hours. It's outrageous. <laughs> awful. I, don't, I think they probably write them quickly, too. I don't know. I mean, I don't know what anyone else does. I do know it's considered odd not to start at the beginning. It's actually normally it's by the process of writing that I work out what I think about anything. And, I, you know, often about two thirds of the way down, I'll think, oh, I see that's what I think about this it's actually during the act of writing the column that I will think what I think about these things strangely and then that's why sometimes you'll get a little serious bit at the end of the column bit of a needle scratch like <laughs> anyway enough of that kids uh this is what I really think but it's the act of writing that makes me realize and also, and again, to be fair, I mean, you you have this reputation course of being extremely funny and very witty, but you are all, all, what's very clever about your columns is when you choose to, when you want to, you can be pretty deathly serious and uh, and quite scathing. And there's uh, a quote from me, Armando Iannucci. He agrees with me and I agree with him. <laughs> he says, um, behind hides, hides Marina's, hides uh, wit lurks real anger. Uh, her writing is more than a gentle poke in the ribs. It's a well-wrought and definitely aimed smash in the teeth. <laughs> well, very figurative language. You mentioned just now the Joe Cox column you wrote uh, about six and a half years ago now. Are there days when you wake up and you're, you, you just feel too angry to be, to be quote-unquote funny? I, I often do feel angry, but I try really hard to keep the anger out and to use it very sparingly because I think... You know, some columnists in some ways are quite angry every week. And in a way, I sort of switch off from those, even if the, the anger is very legitimate, just because you sort of slightly feel like you're being shouted at. <laughs> um, and I so I try to use it very sparingly so it doesn't come out all the time. Um, it may lie behind it, but I often think that the best way to get it, people into something, perhaps if they laugh first, then, um, you know, it's a sort of spoonful of sugar, isn't it? And I do, yeah, I do. Th I do feel angry, but I I try to control it and to channel it into something that I hope is more engaging than outright anger. Every now and then you can just write something then that is, but you know, I'm talking like a two or three times a year that is just a sort of, I mean, I've written one today about this um, Met police officer and who has been, um, who has admitted to a number of um, horrendous violent crimes and rapes. And, you know, I was angry throughout the writing of that, but I found, very, you know, it's very important to get all the facts in and it's very important to not have people switch off the subject. And you say in the introduction to your book that you write associatively, I think that's a word <laughs> in the dictionary, yeah. uh, well, it's only a word that you use, you make sense of a lot of things by using reference to others. And linked to that, which I find really uh, interesting and fun also because there are all the movie references you make, uh, like a lot of us, I, I like to think of myself as a bit of a movie buff, and you do this maybe classic thing when using movie references you you automatically assume that your reader knows the reference you're making because we all have this collective knowledge about especially about modern cinema are you a big are you a big fan of the movies and do these references come easily to you well they do really because that's how, as i say that is how i think about things i'm i'm if i go and watch a cricket match i think oh this reminds me of something that happened in westminster last week and equally something that happened in westminster might remind me of something i've seen at lords or something so it's I, I just have always thought like that. And a part of the things the thing, the sort of movie and sport and kind of music references that and TV references that go throughout all my columns, in a way, I do feel that, you know, a lot of people don't really like politics a lot. And but they do like these other things. And in a way, it's yeah. quite fun to filter 
politics through those prisms. I think it's much more accessible. And I think in a way, it's why people, why the columns became so popular in some ways, because I think that, you know, I, I've devoured, by the way, really nerdy columns about p politics and Westminster that tell you some really obscure thing that happened in a back room in 1983 with the Liberals or whatever it is. But equally, you know, there are times when only a Taylor Swift lyric will do. And I and I find and I think that it does make it more accessible and it doesn't have to. I mean, since the subject itself can be either teeth grindingly boring or absolutely enraging, it's quite nice to filter it through things that people like and find fun. Well, no doubt you'll pretend to be modest here and and, and refuse the the idea that you are successful. But let me just for the sake of re for the record say you are a successful a writer now and you're extremely well known. Does it become easier or, or harder given that now you have big, a bigger fan base, frankly, and people expect high standards on a regular twice twice weekly basis? Well, I think that's probably good that it keeps you going. Um, it keeps you going, but it doesn't become easier or harder. I mean, it does to some extent. It becomes. The challenge remains the same always, really, which is to find a way of writing about the news engagingly so that people don't switch off it, but switch on to it. And, you know, oftentimes I won't manage that, but it, it, that's what the aim should be. And because it's, you know, the raw material is kind of constantly changing and rolling. Mm. That's journalism, really. You just move on to the net. You, you keep moving on. So you just have to kind of move on with the caravan. <laughs> <laughs> the hundreds of columnists out there in the UK and beyond, 99.9% uh, .9 are quote-unquote serious. And you found this, this niche where you weld uh, wit and, and seriousness quite quite effectively. And, the, and you have, you know, there's not much competition out there. A couple, I'm, thinking, I'm trying to think as I speak, who might really come up at your heels uh, to try and uh, pretend to be in the same league, like something like Matt Shorley or Giles Corran or... And that's about it. I'm running out of names. And there aren't very many women writers, are there, who write? Well, there are, I mean, you know, there are more and more, and particularly in something like sport when I first started, there were like absolutely no women at all. And now there are more and more. I mean, I think, you know, politics to some extent is always a workplace comedy. And I think there'll always be funny <laughs> things to write about it. Think of all the brilliant sketch writers we've had. And although somebody once said, you know, we, we have jokes in this country, we don't have revolution. <laughs> <laughs> and I wonder whether there is something about having such a sort of rich tradition of political satire and not, not many revolutions. So is one of your worst nightmares that the fact that Brexit might eventually be, be solved in one way or the other and you'll have nothing to write about? Well, I don't. I mean, I suppose. No, I mean, I don't really. I mean, I don't really write that much about Brexit now because it's the reality. But I mean, I would certainly take a hit to my potential pool of raw material for us to exit the permacrisis. <laughs> this is not a nightmare. No, this is my dream. <laughs> and do you see uh, going ahead? I mean, when we have now what uh, Rishi Sunak, who he has many qualities, no doubt, one of which is, or uh, he's called, uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think of a more polite one. He's called boring as well, rather like uh, Keir Starmer is called boring, dependable, reliable, uh, no fuss, no drama. Is that for you, does that make your life more difficult as well, having boring leaders? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't think it's possible to actually, um, I, I think, you know, events take over and no matter how the best laid plans go, go wrong. And I think, you know, there is always humour to be found in, in people rubbing up against reality and it I mean with the with things like the cost of living crisis I think it's sort of very difficult because for the last few years so much of the argument has been kind of theoretical and we've had these mad characters emerging that otherwise you know you'd never have heard of people like Steve Baker Mark Francois I mean by rights none of us should ever heard of these people I had no idea who they are but they were on telly more than Holly Willoughby um, <laughs> and 
you know you've made them even more famous by writing about them well i mean yes but i mean they were the, they were sort of the biggest subject in town it was weird in a way politics did become like reality tv um people who sort of rather awful people who wanted to be on camera and who everyone else could see you know and so i think i i mean it it's made it very difficult not it's made it very difficult but it's really it's very depressing now that the cost of living crisis and actually the kind of knock-on effects of some of those decisions that we spent those years discussing or you know desperately trying to reach we're now seeing them play out in people's real lives which is always as I said at the start you know it's a high stakes game played in people's lives and the real world effects of those things are, are, are now quite clear to see. Right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. The time has just oh. flown by. I know, I know, I've been really enjoying it. Um, I loved it. <laughs> and uh, but given the NHS is such a crisis and people can't get GP appointments and they maybe have some ailments, I suggest that they pick up a copy of What Just Happened, Dispatches from Turbulent Times. It's a real tonic, and that's the biggest compliment I can give you, Marina. Thank you so much. Oh, Paul, thanks. Thank you so much. Okay. And see you around. Take care. Take care. Oh, bye-bye. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye.